All right, open your Bible. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're, we're three weeks in uh, studying the church at Thyatira. And as I was studying this week, I thought, man, okay, uh, this is like one of the most important churches. All these seven churches in Revelation are important. This one is significant uh, because God, through this church, is revealing something very specific about Satan's false religious system. And so uh, this morning, let me just kind of warn you ahead of time, this is not for the faint of heart this morning. Uh, we're going we're gonna to dig in the Bible a good bit. And uh, this morning is instrumental for us to cover so that next week, as we finish Thyatira next week, it all comes together, okay? So, so I understand that, that, man, if you're new or if you've missed a couple of weeks, you may be walking in thinking, oh my goodness, this is... What in the world's going on? Well, there's a lot of content that we're covering. We're not going to pick and choose what parts of the Bible uh, we study. We're, we're studying a book that I think is absolutely important for us to understand, even as Christians. And, and so uh, it's important. And so just know that this is part three of four uh, concerning the church of Thyatira. So as we, as we get into Revelation, we're studying seven real historical churches. And those seven churches also represent seven types of churches that have existed all through church history. But those seven churches all also represent the totality of church history, from the book of Acts to the rapture of the church. And so John is standing in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, and he's tasked to write the things that he has seen, past tense. And, and, and so we know from the Bible that the day of the Lord is, is the second coming of Christ, the, the second advent of Christ. It's not just Sunday or, or just any day. It's a, a very specific prophetic day. And John is standing there looking back at the things that have been. And he's writing about these things. And so we know that, that, that John's really seeing all of church history as he looks backwards and as we break down these seven churches, we actually see that each of these seven churches correlate to a period of time in church history. For instance, the Ephesus church represents or is, is typified from the years 90 to 200 AD, where right after the death of the apostles, men that were good men that loved God and, and I would say even loved his word, they began to deviate in their teaching and their preaching. They began to introduce concepts in their language that was not based in the Word of God. And, and of that Ephesus church period, God says that they left their first love. And, and we see that in church history because right after the death of the apostles, the apostolic church fathers, man, they started saying some things and believing some things that, that the apostles of Jesus Christ didn't say or believe. And it began to influence Christianity, and it also began to be an open door for Satan to get a foothold in the church. And then we studied the church of Smyrna, and, and historically that references about 200 A.D. to 325 A.D., and that was a period of great persecution in church history, and, and there was no correction that Jesus gave that church. He, he admonished them to be faithful to the death, because the truth is, in church history, Many of those people just died. They were martyred for their faith. And then we studied the church at Pergamos, and, and, and that represents 325 to 500 A.D. And, and Satan uh, in Ephesus had false apostles, and in, in Smyrna uh, he had a synagogue, and now in Pergamon he had a seat of authority. And, and, and what we see in that church period in Pergamos was that the devil married a, a political system 
to a religious system through a man named Constantine. Do you guys remember that? A couple of weeks ago, he was the, the emperor that was fighting for control of Rome, and this battle at Milvian Bridge occurred, and the night before the battle, Constantine had this vision, and, and he heard these words, you know, by this sign ye shall conquer, or some variation of that. And the vision was that he saw a cross or a T or a Tau in the, in, the, in the sky. And so he put that on all of his soldiers' armor and shields and horses and all those different things. And the next day he goes out to battle and, and he's victorious. And through that battle, he Christianized the Roman Empire. It became a political, religious state, which, by the way, is not a term you find anywhere in the Bible, Rome became a Christian nation. By the way, there is no such thing in the Bible. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. So those of you that think America is a Christian nation need to revisit the Scriptures because that is no such thing. He married a political system into a religious system, but the truth is Constantine didn't have a biblical conversion. His conversion was seeing a sign in the sky and hearing a voice. And because he got what he wanted, he branded all of Rome as Christian. And what happened was he married paganism to Christianity. And so, and so this, this false Babylonian religious system that has been present ever since Genesis 10 was, was alive and well in Rome, but all he did was take it and make it Christian. And, and, and we're going to get more into that this morning. Man, it, it really, he changed his tactics to come against what God was doing. And then we've been studying the church at Thyatira, which represents for us 500 to 1,000 A.D., and we, we've said that this is an interesting city mentioned in the Scriptures because it's only mentioned in two places, Revelation and Acts chapter 16. And in both places Thyatira is mentioned, it's connected with two different women. In, in Revelation, it's connected to a woman named Jezebel. We're going to talk a lot more about her this morning. In Acts 16, it's connected to a woman named Lydia. And, and those two women represent two types of believers, a true believer in Lydia, a false believer in Jezebel, but those two women also represent two types of religious systems. And, and remember, when we studied Lydia, she was the one that gave heed to God's Word. She was teachable. She was faithful. She was reachable. Jezebel was not any of those things. As a matter of fact, she was a religious person, as we saw in, in the Old Testament, but she had no fear of the Lord. She was unteachable. She was unfaithful. And the truth is, every one of us are one of those two types of women individually. And the truth is, our church is one of those two types of women. We're either a church like Lydia that heeds God's word and humbles ourselves and, and are teachable, or we're a church like Jezebel, doing a lot of religious things with absolutely no fear of the Lord at all. And that's true of us as individuals, too, and we've, we've kind of made that point. Okay, so Christ reveals himself to this church at Thyatira as the Son of God, and we talked about that's his deity and his authority, and he, he has eyes like a flame of fire, and that signifies his justice. And then he has feet like fine brass, and those feet are going to be feet of judgment. They're going to split the Mount of Olives and crush the serpent's head and, and even ultimately judge sinners. And then we see that Christ commended this church for a lot of things. They had charity, they had service, they had faith, they had patience. They even had works that at the end were more than their works at the beginning. In other words, they didn't, they didn't quit halfway through their walk with God. 
They kept laboring right to the end. And, and then the last point that we got to last week was correction because Christ began to correct this church. And so go back to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, and we'll just launch off of this verse this morning. It says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And we began looking in the Old Testament about this woman named Jezebel, and we went back to 1 Kings chapter 16, where she is first introduced in the Bible. But this morning, we're going to actually go back a little further. Because this morning, I want us to see that, 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 that the woman that Jezebel represents, again, is a religious system. And before the physical woman Jezebel ever was walking on this planet, there was a, a false religious system like Jezebel already in place. And so, and so this morning, we're going to talk more about this woman named Jezebel. You guys ready? Okay, man, listen, we need to pray because God's got to give us some grace and, and understanding this morning. So let's pray and ask him to help us. Father, we love you. We need you. Uh, this morning is, is, is impossible without you. We, we need your understanding from the Word of God to see what's been happening through history. God, thank you that you give us a book we can trust. Thank you you give us a book, God, that's not only applicable for, for today, but it, it's, it's true historically and it's true prophetically for the future. God, we can put all of our faith and trust in what you say because it's true. Your word is truth. And so, God, thank you for giving it to us. I pray your Holy Spirit teaches us today. We need you and we ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's, let's kick it all the way Old Testament because in the Old Testament, Satan used a literal woman called Jezebel to bring this religious system called Baalism to pervert the true worship of God in Israel. Now, we looked at that briefly last week in 1 Kings 16, but the truth is we've got to kind of go way back even before that to see how she was influenced, and we're going to go all the way back to the book of Judges this morning. And uh, if you've read the book of Judges, there's a key context that you want to understand from the book of Judges. Two times in the book of Judges, these two verses, which are exactly the same, uh, show us the context of that entire book. It says in Judges 17, 6, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own what? His own eyes. And then in Judges 21, verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so it, it, the book of Judges is a key book in your Bible. It has a significant tribulation application where God is, is delivering Israel through a series of judges from Gentile persecution or from their own sin. There, as a matter of fact, there was a, one of those judges named Samson. Do you guys remember the dude named Samson, right? Had long, beautiful flowing hair, much like mine, you know. That's, that's a joke. Actually, I saw that video of me bending over working on that generator, and I thought, man, whoever filmed that, I'm going to lay hands on that guy. Colin, we'll talk to you a little bit later. Whoever it was running the camera, I was like, man, that looks really... You know, I don't normally see that because I'm tall, and you don't normally see it because I'm tall. And then I work on a generator, and everybody knows my secret, and I'm a little upset. So there's this dude named Samson, right? He's a judge in Israel, and if we remember right the story, that guy was seduced by a woman. And, and that woman 
caused him to lose fellowship with God, caused him to, to fail in his calling, in his relationship with Israel and, and what God wanted to do. It was, it was because of a woman that he was seduced and fell. Okay, so Judges 17 is where we're going to start this morning. And we're going to go all the way back to this guy named Micah. Judges 17, 1 to 6, and I, and I think we have portions of it on the screen. It says, there was an, a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, uh, listen to this relationship, by the way, this, this father, or excuse me, this mother and son relationship. He said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursedest, and spake also in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. What? So you got a mom that's like, you know, cussing the house up because her money's gone. You know what I'm saying? And then, and then the son is like, hey, just so you know, I took it. And his mother said, you dirty, rotten. Oh, that's not what she said. Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. Uh, dysfunction? Hello? <laughs> and, and when he had restored the 1,100 shekels to, of silver to his mother and said, I have wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord for my hand, for my son. Listen, to make a graven image and a molten image. What? Now, therefore, I will restore it to thee. Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took 200 shekels of the silver and gave them to the founder who made thereof a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a house of gods, and he made an ephod and a teraphim, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Man, what a whacked-out story. Here, here is this mother and son who have money, who, who the son steals the money, then gives it back to the mother. Then the, the, the family takes it and makes a graven image, by the way, forbidden in the Ten Commandments, forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy, right? And, and they make a molten image. And then he goes a step further and he even makes an ephod and a teraphim, another idol. And he says one of his sons is going to be his priest. Micah is setting up his own religious system. Do you see that? Okay, Judges 17, verses 7 to 13. All right, now check this. There was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judea, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judea, uh, to sojourn where he could find a place. And he came to Mount Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, uh, Judah, and I go to sojourn there that I may find a place. And Micah said check this out, dwell with me and be unto me a father and a priest, and I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the year and a suit of apparel, because I've I, I gotten pretty good at making religious wardrobe, and thy victuals. So the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite. By the way, what authority did Micah have to consecrate the Levite? And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, now I know the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. And, and, and you just need to pay attention to verse 7 because this, this Levite, the Bible says, was a young man. And he shows up at Micah's house, and Micah's really interested in a false religious system. 
And so Micah understands that this guy is a Levite, maybe part of the Levitical priesthood, and he says to this guy, hey, listen, if you'll dwell with me, I want you to be to me a father. Now, that's very weird, isn't it? He's younger than Micah. As a matter of fact, the verse says he's as one of his sons. And yet he says, I want you to be to me a father. I want you to be to me a priest. I'm going to pay you. Here's your annual wage. And I actually have an ephod that you can wear. Micah hired a Levite to be a father unto him who would become his priest and, oh, by the way, who would dwell in a house of gods. And they would use idols in the aid of their worship. Hmm. Okay, that's weird. So then it gets a little more interesting because when you go to Judges 18, you're introduced to one of the tribes of Israel named the Danites. And in Judges 18, verses 1 to 3, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, right? We read that. Uh, and, and in those days the tribe of the Danites sought them an inheritance to dwell in. For unto that day all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. And the children of Dan sent forth uh, their family, five men from their coast, men of valor, from Zorah to Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, Go search the land, who when they came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, they lodged there, and they were by the house of Micah, and they knew the voice of the young man, the Levite. That's weird. They're like, hey, man, that's old so-and-so. I hear him. Yeah, we know who that is. They turned in thither, and they said, hey, who brought thee hither? What makest thou in this place? And what hast thou here? And so listen, you need to know something about the tribe of Dan in the Bible. And again, this is, this is Bible study this morning, more, more teaching than preaching this morning. But you need to know that, that Dan, the tribe of Dan is called a serpent. In Genesis 49 and verse 17, it says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse's heels. And, and so Dan is likened to a serpent, now, those of you that study the Bible, you know that the serpent is a picture or type of who? Satan. Satan. I mean, and that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. And now, this tribe of Israel is called a serpent. Oh, and, and in Deuteronomy 32, Dan is also called a lion's whelp. And we know from 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 that we have an adversary the devil, and he's as a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour. And so here's this tribe of Israel that's connected prophetically to Satan himself, and they show up at Micah's house, and they recognize the Levite, and they, they're like, hey, bro, what are you doing here? And, and, and so if we keep reading the rest of the story, and we're not going to read all of it, but if you read from seven, verse 7 all the way down to verse 14, the tribe of Dan is going to take this city, Laish, and they're going to take Micah's religion with them. Okay? Look at, uh, and, and again, we're going to, just for time's sake, we need to move, but if you read from verses 15 to 20, they send 600 soldiers of the Danites. They go to Micah's house. 
When they get there, they find the graven images, they find the ephod, they find the teraphim, they find the molted image, and they find the dude who is the father and the priest to Micah. And they say in verse 18, hey, bro, uh, uh, you with us or you want to stay here type thing. And and, and as those 600 soldiers show up to Micah's house, they're like, hey, what are you doing? And they said, uh, verse 19, they said unto him, hold thy peace. I mean, it's 600 to one, like shut your hole, you know, type thing. Uh, Hold thy peace, lay thy hand upon thy mouth and go with us and be to us a what? A what? A father and a, and a priest. For it is better for thee to be a priest unto the house of one man, or that thou be a priest unto a tribe and a family in Israel. What? So now this young man who, who was one man's priest, who had established a false religious system, is now asked to become a father and a priest for an entire tribe of the nation of Israel. Well, that's very interesting. And so they conquer the city Laish in, in verses 21 to 31. And in the last part of that, that verse, that passage, it says that the children of Dan set up the graven image in verse 30, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests unto the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. And they set up Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. So, so Dan inhabits a city called Laish. And again, for time's sake, you just need to write down maybe a couple of things. Laish was a city after the Zidonians. Their manor was after the Zidonians, The reason that's important is because last week we said that the Zidonians were Baal worshipers. And so so Dan lands in land of Baal worshipers, but they have their own images. They have their own priesthood. They set up a religious system that, that is paired with pagan worship. And there are young men who are called priests who are, who are to be called fathers. And it includes idols and images to aid in worship. And I'm not saying anything other than what I'm saying. And what I'm saying is what the Bible's saying. And some of you right now are like, okay, well, that sounds familiar. There's some religious systems in our time that have young men that are called fathers, that wear a certain ephod, that have idols that are aids in worship. Well, I think God's, God's trying to help us understand where that came from. So, so how does that relate or connect to Jezebel? Well, 1 Kings 16 tells us that Jezebel is the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Zidonians. So, so, so there's a connection with everything that we learned about Dan through the book of Judges and Micah's false religious system that comes right into play in 1 Kings 16 when Jezebel shows up. And by the way, when she shows up, she forces all of the northern kingdom of Israel, she seduces them to serve Baal. It's a false religious system. 1 Kings 18 and verses 20 to 21, it says, Ahab 
sent unto all the children of Israel. This is, this is that moment on, on the Mount Carmel with Elijah. All the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto how many of the people? All the people. I mean, the entire northern part of Israel is following Baal. They're, they're, they're following this system of Jezebel. And it's ultimately just Baal worship. And of course, you know the showdown. Uh, the truth is, there were some people that weren't following Baal, right? Elijah was one of them. And th- there were a few thousand other prophets that weren't following Baal either. But man, we see how this connects back to Jezebel. Number one, she seduces. Remember, Christ speaks out against the church at Thyatira because Jezebel was seducing people to commit fornication. Not just physically, but spiritually. And the second thing that, that Jezebel did in 1 Kings 16 was, or, or verse, chapter 18, is that she feeds the false prophets of Baal at her table. And, and if you know any, and again, I'm, I'm trusting that you read the Bible this morning, and that may, be a, that may be a stretch. You need to read the Bible. Because of these things that I'm talking about, you've had no experience, and you've been saved for five years, you need to get in the book. I mean, read the Bible. Don't read books about the Bible. Don't watch videos about the Bible. Read the Bible. You say, well, I've never read the Bible. Well, read it through once and then read it again and then read it again. And then you can show up and understand what what God would have us understand from his word. Jezebel feeds these false prophets of Baal at her table. You say, "Why why is that important? Because there's a famine in the land in 1 Kings 18. Elijah had prayed that there's not going to be any rain for three and a half years. And so if there's no rain, there's no crops. And the only food is coming through this false prophet, this false religious system, this Jezebel who's feeding her own prophets, 1 Kings 18 and verse 19. Now, therefore, send and gather unto me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, listen, which eat at Jezebel's table. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. I have a few things against thee, Thyatira, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. That's why it matters. It matters Because the devil is using a false religious system through Jezebel to seduce and to corrupt true worship in Israel. And he uses a system in which young men are called priests and fathers. And they have idols that aid in worship. Oh, and by the way, it can be stolen. (laughs) That's very interesting. Okay, so, so how does that relate to us? Well, listen, in the church age, Satan is using a figurative woman called Jezebel to counterfeit true biblical Christianity. And just like we saw two weeks ago in the church age, there are two women that are present. There, there is the, the religious system of Lydia that is biblical Christianity. And there is the religious system of Jezebel at work. And both of these women are pictured for us in Proverbs 7, Verses 4 to 23. And, and I don't know if you've ever read Proverbs chapter 7. 
Okay, three of you have. Might need to work on Bible reading. Proverbs 7 is an interesting proverb because in Proverbs 7, there's two women. Look at verse, uh, and you're going to have to turn there because we don't have all the verses on the screen. So I want you to turn to Proverbs 7. This will be good for you. Let's look at it together in the scripture. There's two women in Proverbs chapter 7. There's a right woman who's, who's likened unto wisdom and understanding. And there's a strange woman. And, and man, God puts a lot of ink on paper about this strange woman. And, and when you read Proverbs 7, man, it's easy for you to think, well, this is just some, some specific woman that he's talking about that's working a street corner. You know what I'm saying? Like, like a, a strange woman. And yes, that's true, for sure. But man, there's something much deeper and much more at play in Proverbs chapter 7. Let's look at it, chapter 7, verse 4. Say unto wisdom, thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they, wisdom and understanding, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger with, which flattereth with her words, for at the window of my house, I looked through the casement. By the way, window, uh, heaven has windows. And so as you're reading this, can you just imagine God himself looking through the windows of his house down to earth and observing men? He's looking through the windows of his house, through the casement of his windows. And he says, I beheld the simple ones. I discerned among the youths a man void of understanding. Now, young people get a bad rap. And the reason they get a bad rap is because they're clueless. You don't have to be young and clueless. And, and the, the sad reality is young men and young women that don't gain understanding turn into older men and women without understanding. So before you start despising the youth, make sure you're looking at your own life and asking yourself if you have wisdom and understanding. That's free. That went in the notes, but it's worth mentioning. So, so he, he, he's looking through this window, and he sees a simple one, a youth, a man void of understanding, and here's what he's doing. He's passing through the street near her corner. Now, that's weird. She has a corner. Like, it, that's her corner. You know what I'm saying? Like, her street corner. And he went, he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, and like Cody Head says, there ain't nothing good that happens after 8.30 at night that's good, right? I mean, ain't no reason to be on the street after 8.30. Get to the house. Get to your house. Verse 10, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart, and she's loud and stubborn, and her feet abide not in her house, and she is without now in the street, and she lieth in wait in every corner. And she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said to him, I have peace offerings with me. In other words, hey, let's eat, man. I paid my vows. I mean, that's the way to a man's heart, right? Through his stomach. I've got peace offerings. I paid my vows. Therefore, I, I, I come forth to meet thee diligently to seek thy face. And I found thee. Hey, I've been looking for you. I've decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. That's the other way to a man's heart. I perfume my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take of our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with our loves. For the goodman is not at home. He's gone away on a long journey. He taketh a bag of money with him, and he come home at the day appointed. 
And with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. And with the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare that knoweth not that it's for his, it's for his life. Okay, man, what does all that mean? Well, here's what it means. There's a strange woman that not only is a real woman, but more importantly, she's a seducing woman because she's a religious system. And she seduces, number one, with flattering words. Man, she'll tell you how awesome you are and how God wants to bless you and give everything to you and this life is about you and how can you leverage God for your good and for your blessing and, and all these different things. Man, that's, that's flattering words. And yet, and it, and, it, and it tells us, listen, that strange woman, man, she flatters with her words. In verse 21, it says she uses fair speech. Now, any of you that have been around here for any amount of time realize you've got a redneck South Alabama pastor. There ain't no fair speech going on up here. But, but you know what? Listen, Paul, when he did ministry, he didn't use flattering words or fair speeches. He just preached the book. As a matter of fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 45, when he writes back to the Thessalonians, he says, As we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, listen, not as pleasing men. And, and can I just tell you that flattering words and fair speeches will please men. He says, listen, we didn't come preaching so that we pleased you as men, but we're worried about pleasing God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. And the point is, biblical Christianity is not going to flatter you. And it ain't going to flatter me either. What it'll do is flatten us, in the words of Mark Trotter. It'll flatten us to the point that we realize we need a Savior. And we'll humble ourselves before a holy and a righteous God. But listen, there's a religious system, man, that'll flatter you with words and make you think you're the best thing since sliced bread and make this Christianity and, and, and spirituality all about you and you become the focus of God's love and attention. I, I, think, it, I think biblically it's the other way around. God needs to be the focus of our love and attention. Number two, this religious woman seduces with fair speech and, and we saw that in, in verse 21, the, the, the equivalent to that is Romans 16, because Paul says in, in, in the Roman epistle, he said, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned. Avoid them, for they are such that serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And listen, there are people in churches and there are people in religious organizations that, that teach and preach, but what it does is create division and offense, and it's contrary to the doctrine of the Word of God. Even if they're using the Word of God, it's not rightly divided in context, rightly divided and discerned by the Holy Spirit of God. And, and, and Paul says, by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the, the simple. And I don't know of a better verse that, that ought to call you to get discipled than that. 
Because if you want to stay simple in your Christianity, you need to understand that there's, a, there's an enemy that's using a religious system full of good words and fair speeches that has a heart to deceive you. Good, wor- good words aren't always sound words, and fair speeches aren't always sound doctrine. And both can deceive the hearts of the simple. In other words, the simple-minded. Those that refuse to mature in the Word of God. Number three, this religious system seduces the simple. It seduces the simple. Who she's looking for is the simple-minded young man. That's who she's working the corner for. It says, Behold, among the simple ones I discern through the, uh, among the youths a young man void of understanding. Simple over and over in the Bible simply means unwise. Someone who is immature, who is simple-minded. Psalm 19 and verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God wants you to move from being simple to wise. God wants you to move from being unwise to wise. Why is that important? Because there's a seducing woman that's coming after you. Psalm 119 and verse 130, the entrance of thy word giveth light. It giveth understanding to the, to the simple. Proverbs 8 and verse 5, O ye simple, understand wisdom, and ye fools be of an understanding heart. And man, listen, I know that sometimes you sit and listen to a sermon from this gas bag and think, man, why does he get so riled up about it? Because there's a religious system damning people to hell. And man, if I know it, God help me to warn people, because I'm really not interested in pleasing you. I'm worried about pleasing God. And there are people that are on their way to hell that need to be told the truth. And some of you in this room need to be told the truth. Some of you need to heed, heed the word of God and, and decide and discern for yourself. You know what? It's time, to be, it's time to stop being simple. I'm playing games with my Christianity. The truth is I couldn't take my Bible and open it and rightly divide it if I had to. And without the internet, I can't find out what my favorite author says. You need to grow up. You need to quit being simple-minded. This woman seduces, number four, in the night. It's very interesting when she comes after this young man. She's doing it in the night, verses 8 and 9. Passing through the street near her corner, he went the way to her house. Listen, in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Night is always a picture of the church age. It's always a picture. Christ was on this earth, on this planet. Listen, it was the day of the Lord on this planet when he's on the earth. He is the son of righteousness But when he ascended in Acts chapter 1, it became spiritual night. And and the night for the church age is because Christ is not on this earth. And listen, there's a seducing woman. And man, she's doing her work in the night. And she's coming after young men. By the way, if that was your son walking on the street in a very physical context, you would wring the life out of him yourself, right? Like, hey, you idiot. Don't be walking in her corner. Get off this street. And and as a parent, man, for sure, we would do that. God help us to have that much fervency for people wrapped up in false doctrine and false religion. Because she's working, man. She's working when we're not, by the way. Number five, she seduces with her attire. The Bible says in verse 10, Behold, there was a woman with an attire of a harlot, subtle 
of heart. And man, can I just tell you, false religion has a certain look to it, right? I mean, it has ephods, and it has idols, and it has images, and it has stained glass, and it has architecture. And listen, those things in and of themselves aren't bad. Listen, if you want to use that, that's fine. But can I just tell you, just because it looks good on the outside doesn't mean it's real on the inside. That's why I like the gritty little church that we have, man, where we got paint peeling, stripes coming up in the parking lot, we got weeds, you know what I'm saying? We need to pressure wash the side. I mean, we got all the stuff, man. It ain't polished at all. Okay. But I think there's some substance. I think there's some reality. Matthew 23, verse 27 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within, full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And can I tell you, false religion... Man, it looks really good on the outside. You got all the ducks in the row, man. Got all the garb right, all the little trinkets right, polished perfect. I'm not making an excuse. We should do things with excellence, by the way. Let me just come back around on that because we need to pressure wash the sidewalk and we need to paint walls and we need to get the sound right and the video right. We, we need to do all those things. We need to be prepared to teach and preach. But, I, but I'm telling you, just because it's whited on the outside doesn't mean it's alive on the inside. You know, God tells us in 1 Samuel 16 that man looks on the outward appearance, but it's God that looks on the heart. And I will encourage you, listen, uh, some of you are newer to this church. Make sure you use God's judgment concerning spiritual things. Man, if you judge a church or a Christian based on what you see externally, that's the way man looks. But God looks on the heart. And listen, a church or a Christian can have the right looks and be full of nothing but death. Or you can just be outwardly, you know, balding, <laughs> average, whatever. But man, on the inside, there's treasure innumerable. You know what I'm saying? There's value, there's worth, there's substance, there's life. Man, that's what we want. That's what we want. We want something alive. Listen, this... This false religious system, man, she seduces with the way she looks. Number, number six, she seduces with her bed. She says she's decked her bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. You know that Egypt is a picture of sin. It's a picture of the world. Israel was delivered out of Egypt through the blood of a lamb. It's a picture of salvation, their deliverance from Egypt. Egypt is always bad biblically. And here's this woman, man, she covers her bed with this fine linen of Egypt. She's perfumed it with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon, but man, listen, the next verse, or the next, the next blank, her seduction is to the man's death. Bro, there's no good intention. <laughs> she has no good intention for him. He goes after her straightway as an ox going to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of stocks. Man, he's bound Till the death, man, a dart's going to go through his liver. And that's kind of a gross analogy, right? A bird that hastes to the snare, like a bird goes to a snare, not even knowing that, man, this thing's going to ensnare me and entrap me and destroy me. So I'm just, you know, practically, we need to understand this Jezebel system still at work. It's nothing more than Babylonianism, Babylonianism, Baalism, it's nothing more than Satan's religion. And whatever its face is, 
Because some of you are wanting me to say what you think I'm saying. But the truth is, anything that's a religious system that's not rooted and based in biblical Christianity is Jezebel. And I'm going to show you that in just a second. So, so we've seen it in the Old Testament. We've seen it in the church age. Can I just tell you, this thing's going to continue even into the tribulation. So let's look at the last blank, blank with the, the, the <laughs> three minutes we have left. In the tribulation period, and this is future, Satan is going to continue to use a religious system called Jezebel to deceive and destroy those who fornicate with her. And again, we're going to get into this as we study Revelation. Let me give you the blanks real quick and then we're done. But man, in the book of Revelation 17 and verse 3, John sees a woman sitting on a scarlet-colored beast. John 17 and verse 3, So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and, and ten horns. And, and your next blank in Revelation 13, that beast is none other than the Antichrist. It's the Antichrist. And the Bible says in Revelation 13, you know, you can read verses 2 to 4, that it's the dragon, the serpent, the devil, giving the Antichrist his power and his seat and his authority. And so this woman is connected with the Antichrist in the tribulation. Revelation 17.1 says that this woman is a great whore. And I know that's strong language, man, but, but again, we're talking about spiritual fornication that leads to destruction. Revelation 17, verse 1, it says, There came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show you the, the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. This woman is mystery Babylon. Revelation 17, and verse 5. Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And so God clears off some space to let you know who she is. Verse 5, Revelation 17, verse 5, that woman is called the mother of harlots. And, and let me just tell you, that's why I don't believe you can peg one particular religious system as the devil's system. Because there's a mother of harlots. And we read Proverbs 7, that man, there, there's enticing women. There's, strange, there's a strange woman. And so, and so listen, Ultimately, whatever it is, it's anti-Christ, right? It, she is the mother of harlots. But man, there's, there's, there's many harlots that are vying for the attention of men spiritually to seduce them away from the truth found in the Word of God. The Bible says that this woman is, is, is the woman of the Tower of Babel, and we, and we talked about that two weeks ago. She's Semiramis, who had a son named Tammuz. Uh, she, she worships the sun. She was immaculately conceived through a sunbeam, right? She, she had a false virgin birth to her son named Tammuz who lived and then died and then, and then had a false resurrection who was Nimrod resurrected. They're just stealing what God said about Christ. I mean, come on, man. She's the synagogue, excuse me, she's the woman of the Tower of Babel, yeah, and then she's the synagogue of Satan, Revelation 2, verse 9. And then ultimately, she is that woman, Jezebel. That's who she is. Okay, so all this is important because next week, man, we're going to piece it together in history. And we're going to see it. And we're going to see, man, how, how in the world did Satan do that? But go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse, Revelation chapter 2, verse 24. 
Just like in Elisha's day with Jezebel, there was a remnant that weren't the prophets of Baal and that weren't the prophets of the grove. Even in church history, I want you to understand in verse 24, Jesus says, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden. And what I want you to understand is in church history, we get kind of a, a false narrative of church history as people teach it today. And we'll get into it next week, but, but, but the point is that, that, that most people that teach church history, history say that we're all part of this one universal Christian religion, and then it begins to splinter off into denominationalism. Well, let me just tell you, there's people through history that never were a part of that. There was a remnant that never was a part of that Jezebel religion. And man, they gave their life for it, by the way. They gave their life. So what do we take away this morning? Well, I think for us practically, Proverbs 7 is the takeaway for us this morning. One, we need to be reminded that, man, there is a battle for the souls of men, and there's a battle for the Word of God. We need to understand that there's a seducing woman that seduces men's heart through religion. And that religion is either biblical or it's false. And we need to to go to war and warn men. To do that, we can't be simple-minded. we got to grow. Does that make sense? we we got to mature. And so God help us to give, God give us opportunities to, to speak those things to the people that need to hear it. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll dismiss. Father, we love you this morning, God. We covered, man, a lot of ground this morning.